Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's a centuries-old concept, if you will, that was used to determine one's race for being black. The so-called one-drop rule. We'll explore the topic today with three academic scholars. Plus, there's a new book, Civil Rights Queen, and it's all about Constance Baker Motley. If you're not familiar with her, well, keep listening. And we'll remember author and journalist Valerie Boyd. All those conversations coming up just ahead. But first this, the judge in the federal hate crime trial for the three men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery plans to set, seat a jury today. Prosecutors say the three white men violated Arbery's civil rights when they chased and fatally shot the 25-year-old black man as he was running in a Brunswick neighborhood. Emily Wu Pearson has more. U.S. District Court Judge Lisa Godby-Wood and attorneys interviewed more than 160 potential jurors from coastal and south Georgia. That pool will be narrowed to a jury of 12 plus four alternates. Last month, the three men were sentenced to life in prison for their state murder convictions. All three have pleaded not guilty in the federal case. The judge said she expects attorneys to make their opening statements today, and the trial will take between 7 and 12 days. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. In other news, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is assuring residents at the Forest Cove Apartments they will soon get safe homes. This follows WABE's year-long investigation to the conditions at the Southeast Atlanta Complex and one resident's fight for change. Stephanie Stokes has that. That resident, a woman named Miss Peaches, stood at the front as Dickens pulled up to Forest Cove Saturday. She and other residents at the federally subsidized complex have lived among burned-out buildings and rats. They've waited years for a promised renovation, but that plan recently fell apart. Dickens told residents the city is working on an effort to move residents out. This ain't owned by the city, but I'm in it now because this is deplorable. This is something we got to fix. He says he expects to make an announcement by the end of this week. This past year, a new owner named Millennia said it would relocate tenants in order to renovate the complex. But that promise was put in doubt after months of delays when a city judge ruled to condemn the complex. Stephanie Stokes, WABE News. And you can find Stephanie's year-long investigation into the conditions at Forest Cove online at wabe.org slash forestcove. Fine reporting there. Starting today, Fulton County residents can pick up free COVID-19 at home test kits at County Board of Health Centers and libraries. Officials say there's a limit of two test kits per person. They're available on a first-come, first-served basis. And the distribution sites are located countywide, officials say, with an emphasis on health equity. The kits are available during normal hours at most Fulton Library branches and the County Board of Health Clinic in downtown Atlanta. 
And finally, it was a big night for Georgians Sunday in Los Angeles as the Rams staged a come-from-behind win against the Cincinnati Bengals to win 23-20 to win the Super Bowl. Five former University of Georgia Bulldogs will soon get Super Bowl rings, among them Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford. I'm just so proud of this group. I mean, our game today is the story of our season. You know, it's up and down. It's tough. And we're a freaking tough team. Showed up late and uh, got it done. I'm just, I'm excited. Now Rams head coach Sean McVay is also a Georgian. He was a quarterback for Marist School. And it's another Winter Olympic medal for Georgian bobsledder Atlanta Myers-Taylor. Now, in fact, it will be her fourth after making history representing Team USA in the first-ever women's monobob event. The 37-year-old from Douglasville took silver in the single-person sledding race, falling just behind fellow teammate Callie Humphreys, who won gold. Myers-Taylor previously won silver medals for the two women's bobsled events in 2018 and the 2014 Olympics, as well as a bronze in 2010. She almost missed her chance to stand at the podium because she tested positive for COVID-19 after arriving in Beijing, but she was cleared to compete just days before her race. Congrats to all. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Race, is it a social or biological construct? And before y'all start sending me emails, in November of 2020, at a special meeting of its House of Delegates, the American Medical Association voted to adopt new policies recognizing race as a social construct rather than a biological construct. We'll have more on those policies in just a moment. Because there's a centuries-old so-called one-drop rule, which was used in determining who's black in terms of racial identity and also applied to classifying mixed-race folks. It was designated by whites here in the South during slavery and later with Jim Crow segregation. But still, in efforts under diversity or inclusion, some folks say, well, the one-drop rule should be used. While not necessarily they call it that, and some say still applies to classifying one's race. That depends on whom you ask. There is lots to dissect about this, so join me now to offer their insight. And it's been some time since we've gathered, I call them the big three, as I call him, from Emory University, co-director of the film and media management and editor of the Burton Wire, Professor Nsinga Burton. From the Morehouse College, Professor of Philosophy and Director of Freshman and Seniors Academic Success, Professor Ilya Davis. And from Georgia State University, Maurice Hobson, Associate Professor of African American Studies and author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. I still think they should have their own show called The Big Three. Welcome back, y'all. Always glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm just going to go ahead and say this and get it out of the way. Every email I get about this segment, I'm just going to forward to y'all. 
you know, because here she goes again talking about race. I got an email that said that. But let's begin with that declaration from the American Medical Association in 2020, because they adopted these two policies. I'm going to read what it said, quote, these policies will, quote, reflect an understanding of race as a socially constructed category different from ethnicity, genetic ancestry or biology and aim to end the misinterpretation of race as a biological category defined by genetic traits or biological differences, close quote. And uh, Professor Hobson, start with you. You accept that? You agree with that? I do think that race is a social construct, but racism is actually real. And I think that that's kind of the issue that we have to kind of play with. And I, I want to just throw this out there to you all for you all to consider. In today's society, uh, I consider myself to be Black American, African American, okay? Uh, but my actual genetic makeup is that I'm 30% of European uh, descent, uh, French and Spanish, 30% Native or Indigenous uh, in terms of, of my biological makeup, particularly Creek and Huma Chickasaw uh, from the, the Gulf Coast. And I'm 40% of African descent, but I identify as African American. Well, you can't put all that on a driver's license. You know that, right? It's <laughs> just too much, man. But check this out. If I were in the Dominican Republic sure. and my last name was Hernandez, I would be considered to be Latinx. Gotcha. We'll so get to that. We'll, talk, yeah, we're we'll talking you. about all this kind of stuff. These are the kind of things. But just, to, just to, as a point of reference, just really quickly, we talk about race and we talk about this one drop rule, but we have to think about 1662 in Virginia, and we also have to think about 1676 in terms of Bacon's Rebellion and what that means. And gotcha. So, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Rose, and you can we can get it started. I should just let y'all talk, and I'll just sit here. Um, <laughs> Professor Davis, you heard what I read in terms of the American Medical Association about race in, in terms of how it should be considered a socially constructed category. You agree with that? Uh, I can say I agree, but it's also a rather old idea. So one thing I have to always be careful of is the certain forms of, of classism. I mean, academics know, have, have been talking this way for over 30 years. And it's good that the medical AMA can now contribute. Maybe it will somehow seep out into a larger um, network. But most importantly, I mean, we've known this from Du Bois, from even Stuart Hall. Often people, people associate the great scholar who's now deceased, Stuart Hall, as being associated with the saying, race is a social, social construct. And he also has a beautiful, brilliant uh, lecture on race as a floating signifier. Hmm. So he's always represented the idea that it's cultural. And I think some people have manipulated that and they create something of a straw man argument because it's easy to destroy race if you predicate it merely on biology. Hmm. Uh -huh. Professor uh -huh. Burton. I concur. I mean, Stuart Hall, who uh, was um, rest in peace, a, a great scholar. Um, he uh, is Afro-British um, by way of Jamaica. Um, and so when we think about race and we think about the complicated ways in which we think about race, um, you know, I think that we have to be mindful of saying that race is a social construct um, and then pretending because that's really where we're headed because that's what America does. Right. So we're going to borrow this term that has been um, this phrase that was introduced by a black man from uh, the UK by way of Jamaica. Um, and so now we're going to pretend like we're woke and that we knew this all along, which we did not. Um, and now we're going to pretend that anything is related to race is irrelevant. Um, and so that is a problem for people who do identify 
um, with their racial categories. However, we got here, you know, we all look at everybody on the screen and we know that um, although we are of African descent, we are far removed. <laughs> and when you do your DNA test, as Mo says, I'm sorry, Dr. Hobson says, when you do your DNA test, um, you will find all of the beautiful things that are, are coursing through your veins. Mm -hmm. um, but that does not negate or um, diminish the level of racism that people of color, particularly black people in this country, uh, face and um, um, have to uh, face and prepare their children to face, um, that doesn't diminish any of that. So we can all agree, you know, on what we've been saying, that means black scholars, white scholars, uh, Latinx, native indigenous scholars uh, for well over 30 years, um, as Dr. Davis said, uh, that race is a social construct. But as uh, Dr. Hobson said, race is, racism is real and we have to deal with it. So what we're not gonna do, we're not gonna do is pretend that racism doesn't exist. And what, what we can't not do is understand the origin of the one drop rule and its relation to racism and why it was even conceived, so to speak. Professor Burden, I'll let you tell our audience a little bit of history about this one drop rule, where it came from who it came from and why. Yeah, I'm going to get let uh, Dr. Hobson do that because that's his, his uh, okay. bell head. Go ahead. And I'm not gonna, this is academic stuff, so you know I'm not going to step on his territory. But what I'm going to say as a media scholar, um, when we think about race as a one-drop rule, and I am from Virginia, so I know what you're talking about, brother. So uh, <laughs> I have to say that. But when we think about if you have one-drop rule, this is basically what it is, and, and Mo will give you the history behind it. If you have one drop of black blood, which let's say this, go back to the DNA, if you, anybody has their DNA done in the world, you have 7% Sub-Saharan African. So based on that, everybody's black, right? Until it's time to be black. <laughs> so the one drop rule said that you were black. Um, and they did this because they really wanted to disenfranchise whole populations of slaves who were coming from slave masters. Mm -hmm. um, and this uh, and and who would not be able to inherit based on the laws that were on the books, but um, they also did that to try to keep the races separated and pure, and to uh, ver uh, add validity to their social construct of race, which was always false. Mm. Professor Mo, excuse me, Professor Hobson, take it. <laughs> hey, you know Mo is my name, so I I, I answer to it either way it goes, but. Uh, you know, there are several things that I would want us to consider here and uh, made the reference earlier to 1662 and how there were differences made uh, within the races. But when we consider colonial Virginia and we consider, you know, this conversation around a gentry class or a planter class who was interested in enslaving, we also consider the fact that there were white indentured servants, poor whites who were living in the particular area who were not treated any differently than uh, enslaved blacks who also were treated in their minds as indentured servants in terms of a term. There was a term in which they would work and then if they completed it, they would be free. And then you have indigenous people, native people who are already present. Well, all of that presents a problem, but the real problem draws down between poor whites and wealthy whites. And what happens is Nathaniel Bacon in 1676 uh, decides that he wants to open up the fur trade uh, business in the western part of Virginia. And his cousin, by marriage, uh, Governor Berkeley, uh, was anti it. And as a result, a class warfare broke out between these, these, these particular groups of white folks. So this was some intra-racial issue amongst white people. 
But the thing about it is Nathaniel Bacon was able to caucus up the indentured servants and those that were enslaved Africans and really wage a warfare. And what we see here is a warfare that is based on working class politics or a class warfare. And what both, what both sides agreed upon was that native people were a threat. Well, the interesting thing about this, and you know, I'll say this and be done, is when it was all said and done and the colonial uh, side wins, what they do is they codify race into law and they base the status of freedom based on the status of the mother. And in the power dynamics of paternalism, we begin to see white men and black women, and thus you have the creation of uh, mixed race children who oftentimes had to be uh, seen as being enslaved. And so it was based on this, if there's any, and then we would talk about Africans, any African lineage, if you will, on the mother's side, Basically, if anybody was black on the mother's side, then you were classified. I want to be clear for our listeners, too. You were then classified as, they probably used the word Negro or something like that of that nature. And that's because, um, for your readers, uh, women could not inherit. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Professor Davis, let me ask you this. When I hear folks say, well, the one-drop rule should apply but they use it for certain circumstances, whether it's black folks or white folks, then there and again lies the problem. Because you can't, you, you use it for when you, you think it's going to be advantageous or to celebrate something, or then you use it when you think that someone is trying to, quote, get ahead, and they shouldn't be, because maybe they don't, quote, look black. A whole lot of optics in there, a whole lot of wrongness in there, too. Well, let's try, let's try to make people upset. As you said before, they're going to call you, not me. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> the, the formal term, as they use it, is called hypodescent. Hypodescent is what they refer to as the one-drop rule. And from my vantage point, this is a response to trauma. Years and years and years of trauma. And people, as much as they may not like to hear it, one, usually, because of our basic animality, wish to avoid a conflict. So I often look at people historically when they, even Nella Larson's, you know, wonderful book, Passing. Mm -hmm. um, the idea here is what would one do to mediate the suffering and the pain that has somehow befallen these children of Africa? And I say children of Africa because on one level, if you, if you look at the language we use, everybody's mixed. So it's just, it's a, it's a trivially true thing to say someone's mixed. And it's, it's very problematic for people just to say, um, biracial. Nobody's biracial. Nobody's mixed. These are social constructions that have real life implications. Yes. So we're not dismissing the implications of race. What we're saying is stop playing the game as if there's something called pure. And then if you can, within a temporal period, demonstrate family members to be of different ethnicities, then you say, well, oh, I'm mixed. You've been mixed. You've been mixed and mixed up. And so what I'm saying is, it's a beautiful way to understand this is saying many black people, people who've associated themselves with black, Negro and color, have responded to oppression by trying to alleviate it by saying, you know, I can live in this world. Now, lastly, I'll say very quickly, the first black president of Morehouse College, John Hope, phenotypically, you would say he was white, but that brother decided it was his choice. I'm black. Of course, it, it was, again, grounded on the assumption of how much black. But I think it's a political. So we need to turn towards the political and social historical to get a clearer sense of what does it mean for me to declare who I am in light of the trauma and the social and political conditions that I find myself. Because it will be a choice for somebody who phenotypically looks a certain way. 
So then let me ask you all this, and and I'll stay with you, Professor Davis, to start this off. From a DNA standpoint, when we talk about how do we then, for whether it's a census or how do we define folks from a racial, a race identification, is there another solution? Because when you look at the boxes, it's always, you know, it used to be Negro and white and other, and now we have a little bit more classifications, but can you understand, understand someone listening saying, well, then, all right, you big three, you big scholars, then where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line and identify? How do we, how should we identify? Or should we be identifying each other at all? Should we leave so it there, like, there, go ahead. There are multiple ways of identification. I always try to tell students there are at least two identifying groups, others and yourself, and then there's something in between. I mean, what I say of myself oftentimes does not correspond or match up with what the world says. So the reality of race is the world is going to say something about me predicated on what their assumptions are about my phenotype, as well as if I disclose my gen- genotype. And so we got to be very aware of that. That's very important mm-hmm. because there's a tendency for people to say, well, I don't want my black, these children to grow up in a world predicated on race. Well, it's not their choice. You're born into it. So philosophically, very quickly, what we do is we try to say, what's the domain of discussion, the domain of discourse? Is it going to be predicated on natural, biological? Well, of course not. But then there's the other. Social and cultural becomes problematic because it seems rather arbitrary. Right. Who now is in the group of people who will be declared black? Mm -hmm. That's a little more problematic. But again, I often say if I invite you to the party and you don't come, there's no remorse. Right. You're good with me. And I'm saying this because there have been many people we've known through history to say, oh, he or she is black. And then they say, no, I'm not. Well, that's fine. But I can hear my grandmother and my mother saying, hold up. Are you trying to escape? And that's very important because what a lot of black people look at as the problem with passing is what they deem to be a form of escape from the reality of what others are living through. And that is being marginalized and mistreated and abused because they look a certain way. And it's the false assumptions about intelligence and beauty that are affiliated with that. So that's a reality. And so when somebody passes, again, psychologically, I understand you don't want to be victimized by those very trungy, limited, polarizing behaviors. But for, for us, we want to say socially, politically, what does it mean to be in a class of objects that are referred to as black such that you can redeem the quality? Because racism is one's inability to handle difference. So it's not the problem of race as much as racism says, I can't handle these differences. I want to now create a hierarchy of racial categories, and I'm going to ground this in such a way that it's going to have real life implications, health, politics, monetary backdrop. Professor Burton, then when we talk about these racial categories, is it time that they either be, 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 for when it's possible, we do away with them? Do we need them? Do we continue to modify them? Yeah, no, um, I think we're going to have to modify them. I mean, we don't want to be Brazil, right, and have 19 categories of race. Like, we don't want to do that. (laughs) They have a lot. There are other other countries, like, you know, I know America has a little problem with, like, looking outward and and looking at what other people have been doing for, you know, hundreds of years longer than they have because their uh, civilizations are a little bit older, like, a whole lot older. Um, But it doesn't work in the end. It doesn't work. Um, You have lots of different groups, and then you have lots of conflict. Um, But I think that you do because of how our system of government is set up and how our system of resources are allocated and they are connected to right through the census and other um, for other other uh, systems and and, uh, initiatives, so to speak, um, that we do. We can't just do away with it because we can't disenfranchise people already been 
disenfranchised historically again. And that's what will happen because that is how America works. It's capitalism. That's how it works, right? You have those who have and you have those who, ha who have not, right? Um, and so we can't just say, I mean, it, it is theoretically, and this is what Dr. Davis is saying, like, yeah, of course you could say there's no such thing as race. Let's throw out the categories. We're all mixed, whatever. Kumbaya. But then you have to look at all the systems that are in place that have intersect with racism and classism and sexism and homophobia and heterosexism and all of those things that um, work to make racism have uh, very particular effects on certain groups of people based on the phenotypes. Um, so we can't just throw you know throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we can think about these things in an intelligent way and acknowledge what has been happening, which is what we're not doing, which is why we are canceling books and getting rid of critical race theory from people who don't even know what the hell it is um, and who would, were never taught it because if they were taught it, they wouldn't be getting rid of it. Um, and so that that's what we can't do. So I'm more focused on what we can't do. <laughs> like we can't get rid of the categories because they're already in place. They're attached to systems of um, oppression and uplift and freedom. They're uh, uh, attached to economic systems of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not going to be disenfranchised again because people want to decide that they mixed in 2022 and they don't want no categories. We, we want our reparations. And I'm going to end with this. When we get reparations, you're not going to have this conversation, Rose. You're not going to need this because everybody's going to be in line. Okay. All the people who come out of, out of the woodworks talking about my great, 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 great grandmother was black. I know I look white. I know my kids have blonde. I know all of this stuff. But my great, great grandmother, who I never talked about and who you never asked about, uh, was black. So um, where's mine? Where's mine? She sailed with Christopher Columbus. Uh, Professor Hobson, this black being a complicated racial category, time to modify it, get rid of it. Your thoughts? I, I don't think we should, and, and, and I'm going to tell you why. You know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Dr. Burton brought up reparations because, see, that's the big conversation around here. This is a this might be a, a ploy to not pay African descended people what they deserve. So, so this is a, a business decision for some. But I want to give you a, a, another side of this too. Um, I oftentimes tell my students that everybody in a classroom, like everybody in the classroom, regardless of whether you grew up with your people or not, you have. Scientifically, you have two parents, four grandparents, eight great grandparents. And if you go several generations back, it takes 512 human beings to make one you, unless you are a Lannister. And that is a reference to Game of Thrones. <laughs> so that, that, that speaks about incest. It takes 512 people to make one you. And if you take somebody like me who just gave you some of my stats, my, 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 uh, my father was uh, very much ahead of the game in terms of uh, genetics, mm -hmm. in terms of doing genetic work. He was a chemist. And, uh, he was a chemist, correct? He was a uh, he was an epidemiologist, biologist, but he studied sickle cell, and that's why I grew up in Alabama. It's the highest concentration of sickle cell in North mm -hmm. America was in Alabama Black Belt, and so he would do the genetic testing to see if young people had sickle cell. The thing about it, though, is if you just take the African side of what I laid out in terms of forty percent, I mean, you have Ede, you have Wolof, you have Ashanti, you have Mandinko. So you have all of these different ethnic groups just on that side. The reason we can't do away with it is the conversation around epigenetics, around the passing of trauma, mm -hmm. around sickness. I mean, right now here in the state of Georgia, we have a health crisis with black women and reproductive health. Mm -hmm. We have black women who are dying on delivery tables. And this is due to racism and sexism. Um, you know, we have issues around, you know, higher levels of sickle cell or high blood pressure or um, diabetes or all kinds of different things. And a lot of that is about trauma. It's about the trauma of what took place 
hundreds of years ago in the Middle Passage and how so many of our ancestors never received the proper food, water, sunlight, or exercise, which made the body maintain fluid, which increases conversations around congestive heart failure mm -hmm. and all kinds of different things. And so we don't need to do away with that because it's not just about repairing with money. We're talking about healing people. And so I, I think it would be wise for us not to do away with it. Well, first of all, just let everybody know what we're talking about, because some folks might have just tuned in and they're like, what is going on on Rosa's show? So we have from Georgia State University, uh, Professor Maurice Hobson. We also have from the Morehouse College, Professor Ilya Davis, and from Emory University, Professor Nsinga Burton. And we're talking about the one drop rule, which it's a centuries old concept that says if anybody black on the mother's side, you black, and that's it, and now we're dissecting all of this. I want to talk about Mike McDaniel. And for those who may not know, Mike McDaniel is now the new head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Now, we need another conversation to talk about whether or not he's qualified. But, however, race is now, you know, entered into this. Mike McDonald's father, who is black, I do believe, um, but to everyone's – Never really talked about it. So now people are saying, well, is he considered a minority rule? Is he considered a minority hire based on the Rooney rule? Which, and for those that don't know, it says that, you know, NFL teams need to interview as many black men who want to be head coaches and all of that. That's a whole other conversation. So I'm, I'm keeping it very abbreviated. Um, all three of you are very uh, familiar with the Mike McDaniel situation, as they're calling it. First of all, is it fair that he has to address his blackness or his minorityness, if you will? Professor Burton, let's begin with that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so when you take a job from a team that just fired Brian Flores, who just filed a lawsuit, you got to address race. It's just that simple. So no, you know, Mike McDaniel has had the privilege of walking through life and not acknowledging his black daddy. Um, and that's okay. You know, I don't know black men who are married to non-black women who have children and and they don't ever acknowledge the black part of their family, but I guess they do exist. Um, and then to pretend like you're being victimized because you're being made to talk about your racial history when you are indeed um, uh, profiting from being black in this particular case, because they're only hiring him. Um, and he knows this. Um, they're only hiring him uh, because he has a black daddy that he's never talked about <laughs> um, because they don't want to look like the racist that they are and how they treated Brian Flores and how the NFL has historically um, and categorically treated black uh, um, uh, black coaches, quarterbacks. I mean, you can just go on down the line. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he should have to answer those questions. Um, yes, because he has never played football, uh, he should be answering any question they ask him about being a head coach because, right. you know, we argue about that too. Like yeah. who should get the head coach across the board. Absolutely. So yeah, no, answer any question that he's asked and be thankful that he's getting asked as a head coach. Professor Davis, your thoughts. Yes. Yes, indeed. I feel sorry for him because oftentimes your presence is not aware of the politics around it. And to um, Professor Burden's point, he may have been caught thinking that he did not have to acknowledge which is really sad because I, I written when he gives this false juxtaposition of I'm human and it's not about being black. He assumes those to be mutually exclusive. And I said this saying, poor brother, he really thinks those are different things. That's really sad. I mean, that's the best reading I can give it because the problem here is he has been living a life that is somehow departed from what would normally uh, find its place on my doorstep. And that is a form of racism that is 
grounded in the assumptions made about how I look. So he's been living differently than that. And again, he has been hired because of their belief that he is black because he passed, quote unquote, the test that they have given in order to hire someone to help, according to them, mediate their racism. And so I feel badly for him because my hope now is that he understands the politics of race as he becomes a coach of a majority black football team and that he will not turn against these brothers, but he needs to acknowledge it and live in it. Professor Hobson, you, you play know, football. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing that is going to drive my response also with this. I mean, I think that uh, Professor Davis and Professor Burton have, have really laid it out, but this is another aspect of it. As a former ball player, it should be about whether or not you're qualified. See, there are questions around that. And you have more qualified black uh, applicants in Byron Lethwich. You have Eric B. Enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you have folk who are out here winning all kinds of different things and their teams are consistently going and they hire him. And I see this hire as, as an issue of control. So they hire him and say that they've done what they're supposed to do, but then there's probably some kind of higher up assistant coach who's actually the manager for the field. So all of this is kind of a, a, a real poke in terms of black. It's, it's, a, it's a black facing of what they're doing in order to maintain power. And that's never good. And he's going to have to deal with that because a majority of the NFL is of African descent. I, I read a piece and they quoted New York Jets coach Robert Salai saying people are talking about McDaniel, quote, people don't know this, but he's also a minority. And I think there and also lies <laughs> some some optics around the whole issues around when we talk about race and the one drop rule and all of that. Uh, I have a fascinating segment coming up after this one where we're going to talk about Constance, uh, Constance Baker Motley. When we talk from a historical standpoint, when folks are talking about race, and I'll let you all chime in on this, what are they getting wrong about this one-drop rule in today's society because they try to apply it? Professor Burton? Well, they're trying to be revisionist right to act like we haven't had over well if you're black over 400 years and if you are uh, uh an american who immigrated here 200 years of this system of oppression and domination that has been in place and that has been attached to this category of race so you don't get to then get rid of it because now you have awakened to what people have been saying and writing about um, you know, and your next guest will tell you this, um, for a very long time and have been living it. These are lived experiences. We are not just, um, you know, black or human. We are human, period. And so our lived experiences matter. We count. Um, and so, yeah, race is a social construction, but racism is real. And you don't just get to throw out race um, when it benefits the majority. And the majority has been us for a long time if they will actually change how they categorize race. But since they won't do that in the interest of or in service to white supremacy, we have to still be under the minority. And I put that in quotes um, because we are the majority worldwide, but uh, we have to be minorities in this country. And so I was like, he's not really a minority anyway. Um, and all of this is in service to the continuation of white supremacy. So anything that does that, I am against. Professor Hobson. You know, um, I'm just thinking about this. One of the things that the U.S. gets wrong is, and I think this is even more insightful, is to have a full understanding about what white ethnics had to do to become white. See, yes. that's a conversation that's necessary, too. We're talking about Italians. We're talking about Greeks. We're talking about Spaniards. We're talking about Eastern Europeans, you know, and how 
uh, Irish and how when they arrived on the scene and they were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the kind of discrimination and hoops that they had to jump through to be accepted by the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to be, and be seen as white. Mm -hmm. One of the things I often tell my students is that Europeans don't like each other. That's why we're here, is that they were fighting to be the most dominant power on their, on their continent or in their particular area. And they looked for a free labor source to get that dominant power in terms of riches and gold and all kinds of different things. So what I'm saying is that we have a real problem in terms of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and those others and who can be deemed as white and who is not deemed as white. And that's a big issue that we have to deal with because it's a lot more nuanced than we give it credit. Professor Davis, I'll give you the final word on this. What people can take with them is, again, race is extremely, it's an extremely profound social structure. And that is not to be reduced to an essentialist notion. There is nothing essential about it. There is no purity. So embrace the sociality of it. I mean, the stock market is socially constructed, but no one wants to dismiss it. Most of our cultural accoutrements are socially constructed. So being socially structured does not dismiss the profundity of its impact. So the idea is our institutions function predicated on what they believe race to do and what it means to them. If I go and try to get a loan, I become someone in a set of objects that probably won't get it. Right. So you don't have to use the language. Language is often impoverished. The issue is the phenomena normally precedes the naming of it. So even prior to saying black, we were treated a particular way because of what they assumed to be differences in our uh, phenotypes. And so it's important that people realize it's real. It functions in our lives. It marginalizes people in ways that people need to be attuned of its impact on a day to day basis. But most importantly, how our institutions are structured upon the belief that it is absolutely real. From the Morehouse College Professor of Philosophy and Director of Freshman and Seniors Academic Success, Professor Ilya Davis. I was also joined by, from Georgia State University, Maurice Hobson, Associate Professor of African American Studies, author of The Legend of the Black Mecca, Politics and Class and the Making of Modern Atlanta, and from Emory University, Co-Director of the Film and Media Management and Editor of The Burton Wire, Professor Insinger Burton. I just call him the Big Three. Thank you all so much. Compelling conversation. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Closer Look will continue in just a moment when I speak with Tamika Brown-Nagan, Dean of Harvard Radcliffe Institute and a constitutional law professor. That's coming up in a moment. But first, we want to take this time now to remember author, journalist, academic, and WABE literary contributor Valerie Boyd, who died Saturday night. A literary thought contributor many times in conversation with our very own Lois Reitz's Boyd's 2003 Wrapped in Rainbows is an award-winning and defining profile of another author, the life of Zora Neale Hurston. Valerie Boyd was the founder and director of the MFA program in narrative nonfiction and the Charlene Hunter Galt Professor of Journalism at UGA and was editor-at-large at the University of Georgia Press. Today, State Senator Kim Jackson honored Boyd in the chamber. And so this day, I celebrate her life I celebrate the ways in which Valerie Boyd inspired multiple generations of writers to be creative and thoughtful. Valerie Boyd died just this Saturday in Pine Lake, Georgia, one of our smallest towns in this area. And the members of that town gathered at the footsteps of her house just yesterday and held candles to celebrate this woman, a woman who inspired so many to take a leap of creativity in their own way 
and through their own writings. A woman who enjoyed connecting creative people with others, a person who simply cared about so many and touched so many lives. And Valerie Boyd had just completed Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker, 1965 to 2000. She was the editor. And Valerie Boyd was 58 years old. An inspiration to so many, a good friend who introduced me to Vietnamese cuisine. We'll miss you. We're back in a moment. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. She may be an overlooked trailblazer in the legal field, and alongside Thurgood Marshall argued, argued racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Our greatest fear was that, you know, we could lose it. And then where would we be? Um, in fact, there were blacks who argued that we shouldn't go ahead and push this issue of segregation per se. We had dropped separate but equal. That's archival footage from the Visionary Project with an interview with Constance Baker Motley, the first black woman to argue a case before the Supreme Court and the first to serve as a federal judge. She died in 2005. She was 84 years old. There's a new book, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. It tells the journey of this pioneering legal force. The author is Tamika Brown-Nagan, dean of Harvard's Radcliffe Institute and Daniel P.S. Paul, professor of constitutional law at Harvard. And full disclosure, we had a conversation earlier this month, but it's a compelling conversation, so I invited her so our listeners could learn all about this incredible person. Dean Brown-Nagan, welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you, Rose. So great to be here. You know, we spoke the last time, and, and we talked about, we started talking about who Constance Baker was as a as a teenager. And in your research and preparing for this book, you found... I. Shall we call it a poem or just a, 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 what do you want to call it, a writing that she had that's actually in the, the front part of the book? That's right. It is a poem, and her family was good enough to give it to me uh, because they thought it was so remarkable, and I think it's remarkable, too. Uh, I, I'm happy to just give you a sense of it. Yes. It's yes. called Listen, Lord, from the Slums. Someone told me that a God made the world and everything from stone to wood. And when he had finished it, he said that it was good. He worked on it six long days. On the seventh, he rested content. But I have often wondered if this is the place he meant. And she goes on to look around her neighborhood, which is in New Haven, Connecticut, and and question if this is the kind of place that God uh, uh, meant to exist because mm-hmm. of the you know, the poverty, the racism, and so forth. And she was 15 years old, Rose. 15 years which old. That's just remarkable. I had said, you know, coming into this segment that perhaps she's overlooked, and, and I hope folks understand that is not what we believe, obviously, but for a lot of folks, and I've been getting emails about this, they said, Rose, I had never heard of, they. we've all heard of Thurgood Marshall, they had never heard of Constance Baker Motley. 20, this is 2022. A lot of folks. I mean, I think folks in your space obviously did, but for other folks, they didn't. Why do you think that, that have, this has happened over all these decades? I think she has been erased, and it's because in our society, leadership is coded male. So we think that those who are leaders and those 
who are significant of study and remembrance are, are men. And so, yes, everyone knows Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King Jr. as they should. Uh, don't get me wrong, they should. They deserve to be remembered. But we can do two things at once. We can also remember Constance Baker Mutley and Ella Baker and Shirley Chisholm and all of these African-American women who helped to give us the world in which equality is the norm and the aspiration, I should say. And we're talking about a woman practicing law, arguing before the Supreme Court, arguing on, in courts during a time, during probably arguably one would say, you know, when you talk about the when it comes to race, obviously in, a, in the modern era, if you want to call that the most divisive time in our period as it relates to race and racism. And you referred her as a towering figure so much more than that, her presence in the courtroom, the way she argued cases, and then also coming up under Thurgood Marshall, that relationship in itself. Yeah, so she is both a symbol of change and there's also plenty of substance there. She helped to work on Brown versus Board of Education, the case where the court ruled school segregation, mandatory, unconstitutional. She helped to desegregate public education in the South, including the University of Georgia case with Sherlyn Hunter Galt and Hamilton Holmes, the University of Alabama case, and of course the Ole Miss case. And then there are a range of other uh, decisions that she helped to bring about. Uh, and she was a you know, great friend of the civil rights movement representing Martin Luther King and the Birmingham Children's Marchers. She is someone who deserves to be well-known in inspiration, and we also need to know about the substance of our life. How long did it take you in terms of the interviews, gathering all the information that you needed to research? I know you're an academic, so y'all love research. (laughs) (laughs) We do, Rose. It took me about a decade from the idea to write the book to the publication of the book. And I have to say that the book was delayed in being published because of COVID. There was a backlog at the publisher. And at the time I was disappointed, but of course now it's such a timely book uh, to to have out at the same time as there's an imminent announcement of a black woman joining the Supreme Court. When we, because we just talked about race, I know you heard a little bit of the previous segment. When we talk about achievements as it relates to race, and then we talk about the legal field as well. But let's all be also be clear because you touched on this too, you know, sexism as well too that she faced, and maybe not necessarily just through the lens from other from white folks, but sexism within That's the black right. community. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and we we always we need to tell those stories, even if. Uh, you know, it, it may cause some pain to to reveal them. One of the stories that I tell, speaking of her relationship to Thurgood Marshall, is about how she was so disappointed when he left the Ink Fund and she was not promoted to his position to the head of the Ink Fund. She thought it had to do with gender, but he just couldn't imagine uh, putting a woman in that position at that time. This was 1961, and also thought it had to do with race. Uh, And uh, it's an important story to tell in part because, Rose, I think the issue is still alive and well with uh, women having tremendous experience and leadership qualities, but sometimes being uh, overlooked or devalued 
although they certainly could do a great job in the position. At the same time, I have to be clear that she was so grateful to Thurgood Marshall, uh, said that he made her career. If it had not been for Thurgood Marshall, she said, no one ever would have heard of Constance Baker Motley. And in night, she is nominated um, by Lyndon B. Johnson um, to a federal judgeship. That moment in time, for our listeners who may not understand the significance of that, and also let's be really clear, too, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, she had been sort of passed over by Democratic presidents, or what's the relationship here? Sure. The the story is that Johnson, who so admired her and who vetted her comprehensively, talking to not only the civil rights establishment, but also federal judges before whom she had argued, Supreme Court justices, wanted to nominate her to the Court of Appeals, which is a higher court than she ended up on, Mm -hmm. uh, wanted to actually nominate her to Thurgood Marshall's seat when he was becoming Solicitor General of the United States. But there was tremendous blowback uh, against that idea uh, of, uh, she thought, because of her gender. Um, Some also said that because she had been a civil rights lawyer, that she couldn't be fair, which they meant be fair to white litigants in discrimination cases. Uh, but ultimately she was nominated to the bench to the federal trial court in Manhattan, one of the nation's most prestigious and had a long career on the court deciding uh, some very meaningful cases, a lot of them having to do with sex discrimination uh, and a prisoner's rights case that's really important as well. Uh, I want to- just briefly, if you can, for our audience who may not be familiar, I wanted, I'm going to throw out some names here and just give the significance of Constance Baker Motley to these individuals. First, let's start with Megger Evers. Megger Evers was Motley's constant companion when she litigated the Ole Miss case. He was the head NAACP uh, uh, official in Mississippi. They traveled together. He invited her to his home. You know, these civil rights lawyers experience some of the same indignities as as their clients. So he put her up and he ended up being assassinated mm-hmm. and it broke her heart. It broke her heart. Also, and we all know this name, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, so Motley represented Dr. King helping to, uh, when he was in Birmingham in jail to get him released and also Uh, represented the children who were uh, suspended from school, expelled from school, and also confined after they protested segregation in Birmingham. It was a pivotal moment for her to step in and represent those children uh, because it had been controversial for children to be used on a a mass basis in the movement, Mm -hmm. and the parents were not happy. Uh, so, So, and they were saying, well, maybe King should resign. Uh, because this is not good. She came in and saved the day, and we're so happy she did. When she died in 2005, she was still working on cases right up to her death at the age of 80. Was 84? Yes, she was. A, her clerks called her a workaholic. Uh, she was. She was dedicated to her work. She believed that, and of course, she was having a great impact on. Uh, the lives of individuals, and she she gave it her all until, um, you know, the the end there. If there is 
a line or two, it seems kind of silly, to talk about the legacy of Constance Baker Motley through your lens. And this is personal for you, too. What is it? Yeah. Um, well, she was the civil rights queen. She uh, helped bring about the world that we have today and the historical moment where an African-American woman, highly qualified, one of whom attended the public schools of uh, in South Carolina, University of South Carolina, uh, Motley helped to open those doors for them and for all of us. We stand on her shoulders. And that is a great way to end this conversation. The book is Civil Rights Queen, and it tells this journey of a pioneering legal force, Constance Baker Motley, and the struggle for equality. Tamiko Brown-Nagan, Dean of Harvard's Radcliffe Institute, and Daniel P.S. Paul, Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School. Dean Brown-Nagan, thank you so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Congratulations on the success of the book. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. Take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. It's easy. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of today's show, remember now you can find it again today at 7 p.m. or online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you know we have a podcast that you can subscribe to wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.